Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of February 12th, 2023. Okay, happy almost Valentine's Day or something. I don't know. I'm recording this a week before it comes out, so I'm hopefully announcing that Data Mesh Light and Shade is going live at this point, my Substack. If not, I will in the near future. The goal of it will be in, you know, many of my summaries, I don't tell you what my actual incremental learnings from an interview were. So that will be a lot of the light articles, you know, kind of hopefully being a beacon, shining some light on some positive patterns and shining some light on this is where I think things should go. And then, you know, light and shade. And then the shade will be some of the drama, some data people seem to love, but not drama for drama's sake. But it's time to start calling things out for sure and saying, this isn't how we should do it. Or, you know, (laughs) this is full of, of, of crap, right? Like that we need to actually be able to talk about that stuff. We need to actually start to say, hey, this is incorrect. Um, Not trying to be like the expert and the single um, person that's going to do that for everything. But at the same time, there's some stuff that's that we need to just kind of call out and say, don't do this. So what's on tap for this week? On Monday, it's episode 193, the hidden, pesky, persistent challenges in data-intensive applications, services, and machine learning with Ebru Kusen. So this one has a lot of really awesome hidden gems in it. Ebru really lays out a ton of the challenges we need to take on full force to get the most value out of data mesh. There's a lot of problems we still aren't addressing well with data-intensive applications. There's a lack of toolings, et cetera. This is a pretty subtle one, so hopefully we can get someone to write something about it specifically. If that's you, please do. But like, I think there's a lot of really kind of hidden insights that it's really easy to kind of overlook or I guess overhear. <laughs> I don't know if that doesn't really translate very well from over from looking to hearing on the podcast. On Tuesday, we've got episode 194, the one where Scott goes off about data contracts, part one, Mesh Musings 43. So uh, the title is kind of uh, an homage to It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Not really a show I watch, but I was watching um, a, uh, a documentary about one of the guys and how they bought up a soccer football club and all that stuff. Anyway, so I'm actually going to write some content on this specific topic now that I'm no longer tied down with, with owning the community. In this one, though, I'm basically arguing that everybody is, is pretty wrong about data contracts. That first, data contracts are actually very incremental to past ways of working. There are a number of people who say, isn't this just schema jacking? No, not if you're... <laughs> If you're paying attention, no, it's not. And number two, they data contracts are also woefully inadequate. We definitely need to do them, but they're woefully inadequate to what we actually want 
them to do, what we want them to accomplish, or what people think they can accomplish. I'll be writing about wrapping your data contracts in a data sharing agreement, because I think that's uh, the language that I'm going to start to use around this. So do stay tuned for that. Then on Wednesday, we have episode 195, Jamax Corner number 18, Fixing Unnecessary Complications in Serving Data to AI and ML. So this is continuing the conversation started in episode 17 of of, uh, Jamax Corner about AI and ML's place in data mesh. And so we start with a great point that Jamax had made in the previous episode. We need to make our data products able to serve all kind of analytics in order to get the most value of data mesh. That's not just the diagnostic and the descriptive analytics. That's the predictive, the AI and ML. We need to have our data products just be data that, you know, that can be used for any purpose and that we need to stop kind of uh, creating these categorizations of this data will be used for ML or this data will be used for diagnostic analytics. She also discussed a very painful bifurcation, you know, a kind of painful barrier between upstream data production and data science, where the second data enters the data science realm of influence, it's copied into the data science kind of repositories. And, you know, at the org level, you lose sight of it for discoverability and governance and security and quality and all these things. And so it's just this kind of black hole for data going in and then kind of insights or something or models come out. Eh. They, they pull it in and it's Im- essentially impossible to track. And that creates all kinds of problems. So we argue in this about why, why don't we extend data mesh into what they are doing? Why don't we make it so they have that trusted source of data so they don't have to feel like they have to do that? So I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff coming out this week. Hopefully they're useful. So with that, we're going to get to the extended summary for the interview with Ebru this week. Extended summary for episode 193, the hidden pesky persistent challenges in data intensive applications, services, machine learning, an interview with Ebru Kusen. So in this episode, I interviewed Ebru, who's a lead consultant at OpenCredo. To be clear, Ebru was only representing her own views, though, on the episode. So she started by sharing her background where she was previously a software engineer and a trainer, including training people on SQL, before she moved into data and more recently, specifically data science. As a software engineer, it was crucial to at least model and understand data well enough to ingest and store it for the application side. The big challenges for our software engineers really came in integrating that data into the monolithic data warehouse and then keeping it well integrated as the application evolved. The monoliths were bottlenecks on the software side, and the integration into the data monolith was becoming too much of a major bottleneck for all, right? So bottlenecks abound. As the DevOps and microservices movement picked up steam, the speed to reliably changing the application significantly increased. That increased speed 
created more and more challenges in integrating into that data monolith. The applications drifted far too quickly to easily work with a data monolith that couldn't evolve nearly that quickly. But monoliths also aren't necessarily the wrong choice for all. Just at scale and especially scale of complexity, they become a massive bottleneck. You know, Ebru and myself as well, neither of us were saying that monoliths are the enemy. It's they can cause bottlenecks at scale. When talking about versioning, Ebru talked about the, the many copies of data challenge. Which one is the right one and to use and can I trust it? There are people doing incredibly important work on data where they can't reliably trace it to source and know they're working on the right version. They just kind of have to hope that they are. And with no clear ownership of data, nothing ever gets cleaned up. So finding a reliable, repeatable source of data is very hard. So people, when they do, copy the data they, they do find to their work area, lest that source goes away creating yet more copies. So we figured out how to do versioning relatively well on the software microservices side, you know, especially with APIs, but we haven't figured it out for data, whether that is versioning the analytical API or the data itself. You know, we're, we're kind of getting there on the data product versioning, but the other aspects of versioning and data are still pretty weak. It's far too hard to make our data assets maintainable right now. Thus, the big push to data mesh and with data products. For Ebru, when asked specifically what is the most important aspect of versioning in data, whether that's code, schema, API, or the data itself, she kind of somewhat controversially chose the data itself. This choice, her reasoning was around traceability. What actually happened to the data and when did it change? She expects that the code versioning will will have more version control systems and many people already manage their data-related code work in Git or other similar systems and version control systems. So we'll get much better about doing that on data and we definitely need that. But where we really need to figure out is the versioning of the data itself. Another point Ebru made was that software development really hasn't had a focus on aligning itself to what version of data it is using. It hasn't had this problem. When you do a production deployment, the database is the database, right? That service or that application has controlled the database. It's it's tied to the application. But when we start to think about how we actually deploy software going forward, if it is referencing external data as part of that application, the version of the, the data source that it's leveraging obviously matters far more and we need far more coordination to ensure the software is referencing what we think it does and what we need it to. There is not enough tooling out there right now to easily manage this coordination and it's causing far too many issues. So note for me, this is really incremental thought, right? but it's very hard to actually explain in detail. Historically, most services have been more or less wholly contained in what data they use or they access information from other services via a versioned API on the operational plane. You know, they're just grabbing this thing when they need it. They're not grabbing a, a large chunk of pre-processed data that might be changing more frequently. Again, that's that kind of data asset versus data product. A product can evolve. So the coordination historically has been less challenging, but you know it's meant that we couldn't really leverage data all that well. 
We have not really figured out, well, how to do that for data-intensive applications. This is partly why everyone is building data products, whether data mesh or not related data products. But it's still challenging if you don't think about about providing a steady access mechanism and a way for a consumer to know what they're accessing hasn't suddenly changed without their knowledge. You know, we talk about this with versioning, but I don't, I haven't seen people doing that very well on the API side, right? And, you know, see the episode on my rant on data contracts and how it's not just schema and constraints and, and why this is important. But you know, let's get back to the <laughs> this interview. We just can't escape Conway's law, according to Ebru, and many other people, obviously, as well. But while many people have applied it to the operational plane, we need really to think about how Conway's law applies to data. The way we exchange information can't be only the data itself. We need to get better at how we actually communicate and collaborate internally, or gaps in how we communicate will be reflected in the data and our data integrations. Without fixing the way we work together and and the way we communicate, the producers and consumers will not collaborate well enough to leverage our data to the fullest extent. I know we keep saying similar things in a lot of episodes, but I think Abru put it in, in pretty stark terms about like, if we don't do this, we're just not going to create very strong and um, incremental and valuable data from it. Ebru believes that right now, it's still far too hard for producers to reliably publish clean, trustable, and understandable data. We haven't developed great ways of working, and the tools are definitely not there yet. So if we try to push ownership onto these domains too quickly, it will not go well. They have historically published what they wanted, and we need to make it far easier to publish what consumers specifically want, or the domains won't want to participate, right? This is something I've, I've talked about of, of, we can't just say you now have the ownership, we have to give them the capabilities. Data mesh is a socio-technical approach, of course, but for Ebru, there is a lot of talk about the social and the technical is still lacking. Schmack has talked about this a little bit too, of uh, the, the tooling hasn't changed enough. So either people are saying we can make do with what has, or we kind of just have to wait for a bunch of tools instead of we're going out there and actually changing the tools. There, there are so many tools out there, but they don't work together that well natively and most only do a few specific things. You know, every mentioned that you could need five plus tools to uh, accomplish just the Im- ingestion part of one single use case. There's also a major challenge on the testing side. Can you observe what changes would occur before actually writing the tests, right? Can you figure out what this might look like? And so you're not saying, I'm going to have to write tests that might test absolutely everything, you get a sense of what could change. In general, we need to change our ways of working and data to enable much, much faster feedback cycles in, in Ebra's view. She was working on a project where everyone was in close collaborations and, and people would try things out and get feedback in the same day, meaning that there was far less time spent building towards a solution only to find out the data wasn't available or or there were other challenges. With better data ownership, we can go from idea to ingesting to testing in a short period of time, significantly improving how productive data science team members are. 
note from me, if you listen to early data mesh presentations from Jamak, she talks more about data science, machine learning, and AI than regular old analytics. That is that kind of data bazaar, data marketplace kind of, of concept in action, right? We need to have a place where, where they can go and figure out what, what could I actually go and grab? And we need to make it ultra productive for them to do that, to not just be able to find it, but to understand it and then figure out, can I actually ingest from this and then talk to the, the data producers? Ebru believes we need to take more learnings from microservices, especially the concept of Lego pieces. In data, we haven't really built incrementally in most cases to really achieve good value. It's often been all or nothing, and you know, you kind of it's a data project instead of a product. But cloud means we have a chance to do things differently. That iteration means we can fail faster too. If we have an idea, but we can't get the right data or even enough of the right data, instead of building for weeks, we can change course pretty early. It's important to realize you can't ask any question to any data as well. Sometimes you have a question that just can't be answered with the data you have or can get, and that's okay, right? It sucks, but it's okay. It's better to recognize that and move forward. To do data well or, and better, Ebru believes we need to create psychological safety and an ability to fail safely. That means we will have to train data consumers far better on how we should work with data. A 95% confidence interval doesn't mean what most people actually think. And our human understanding of data evolves too, so consumers must learn to evolve their understanding. Human interaction is far more crucial than many want to believe in doing data well. In data, as Jamak has mentioned, this trend towards super fractional roles, Ebru believes there is far too much focus in many organizations on what specifically is, you know, kind of my role or what is one person's role instead of what is the team's role and how can we make sure we as a team accomplish our objectives, right? The, the sum of the parts being the greater, right? This fractional thinking, of course, creates more friction and challenges and handoffs. Handoffs are always a place of friction and lost context. So we so work to have teams focused on accomplishing team goals instead of individuals focused on this is my part, this is my little fiefdom, this is what I'm going to get done. It's like, how are we working together to make sure we're making music instead of I'm focusing on here comes my solo and I'm going to do a 10 minute guitar solo. You know, I'm just thinking School of Rock and, you know, when it starts out and he's doing just these ridiculous solos, that's not music. That's not good music. That's one person trying to be the star instead of making amazing music together. 